Hello, everyone. Welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a series of digital interviews we've been doing during the work from home period uh, in lieu of our global conference series, the SALT Conference. And really our goal with these uh, digital interviews is to, pro to provide a window into the minds of subject matter experts and to provide a platform of what for what we think are big world-changing ideas. And we're very excited today to welcome Jim Shuto to SALT Talks. Uh, Jim is, the, is CNN's chief national security correspondent and the anchor of CNN Newsroom. After more than two decades uh, as a foreign correspondent stationed in Asia, Europe, and the Middle East, he returned to Washington to cover the Defense Department, the State Department, and the intelligence agencies for CNN. Uh, his work has earned him many awards, including in, uh, multiple Emmy Awards, the George Polk Award, uh, the Edward R. Murrow Award, and the Merriman Smith Memorial Award for Excellence in Presidential Coverage. Uh, Jim is a graduate of Yale University and a Fulbright Fellow. Today, he lives in Washington, D.C. Uh, with his wife and better half, Gloria Riviera, who is a crisis communications professional and journalist for ABC News, as well as their three children. And conducting today's interview, uh, will be Anthony Scaramucci, the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, a global alternative investment firm. Uh, Anthony is also the chairman of SALT. And with that, I'll turn it over to Anthony for the interview. Oh, Jim, thanks for coming on. I just got to hold up the book here. I thought it was a fascinating book. Uh, uh, and when I finished reading it, and I think we just talked about this before we went live, uh, I would say that this is the best book and the most objective book on the last three and a half years related to the president's foreign policy. So whether you like the president or dislike the president, if you pick up this book, it's a seminal study in what is going on and what he is thinking. Um, but before we get to him and your book, I want you to tell us a little bit more about your background because uh, it's fun to read people's Wikipedia, but it's way better to hear something. Tell us something about your background that we wouldn't learn from Wikipedia, Jim. Uh, well, first of all, thank you, Anthony, for inviting me. It really is a privilege. Uh, thank you, John, for the nice introduction. Thanks to all of you for taking the time. I'm always grateful when people take time uh, uh, to, to hear to hear the story, uh, hear the story of the book and how I came to write it. Um, okay, a little bit about me. I'm a New Yorker. Uh, probably my biggest claim to fame is going to the same high school as Dr. Anthony Fauci. Uh, what could be better? An all-boys Catholic school in Manhattan. Uh, I went to college and studied China because it was just interesting to me and it, it was something different. And the only thing I knew I wanted to do after college was to go overseas and travel and learn and study and work. And I did that. I spent my first 10 years as a reporter pretty much in China. And then after 9-11, uh, switched gears and spent a good chunk of my life covering the Middle East and Iraq and Afghanistan and all the, all the conflicts around that. Uh, and it's, uh, it's been sort of, as I, as I like to say to folks, it's a paid traveling education about the world. Uh, and I've enjoyed that as a career. What I've tried to do in this book and others is sort of connect the dots for people where I can on some of these big picture issues. Um, and uh, like you said, I mean, my goal on this, and by the way, for this book, I only spoke to people who worked for Donald Trump, uh, current and former. My goal here was to take a look without prejudice uh, at what he changed and where we are four years after he came in. So I want to talk about the title. You named it The Madman Theory. It's interesting because uh, we go back to uh, 
Richard Nixon's assessment of Nikita Khrushchev. He told his staff that he thought Khrushchev was brilliant in making people think he was, quote unquote, a madman, a result of which it made the rest of the world cautious. Uh, of course, uh, Richard Nixon had less success convincing people he was a madman as it related to the North Vietnam situation. But here we are with the president. Why did you name it the madman theory? Some of it's about the president, frankly, some of it is not. So why did you come up with that title? So something, it started a bit with, with something that, that the president and his supporters have said about him from the beginning, right? This is, this is someone who is going to shake it up. And the, the, the nature of the way he did business and the way he would do government is by keeping everybody off balance, right? You know, some of this is in the heart of the deal. Uh, I'll, I'll be unpredictable. I'll surprise. I will disrupt. Uh, and then bring that all together by the seat of my pants and we'll get to a better result. Now, as I heard that um, and then saw it play out as a reporter with, with him in charge, it, it seemed familiar to me because as, as you said, Richard Nixon tried to harness this same dynamic and he, you know, he owned it. He called it the madman theory. He had Henry Kissinger communicate in no uncertain terms to the North Vietnamese and the worst part of that war that he was just crazy enough to nuke them. You know, there are White House conversations on tape where he even dictates the language to use. Kissinger communicated that to the North Vietnamese. Uh, didn't work, as, as you know. Uh, those negotiations got no better, and the war did not end well uh, for Nixon or for the US. So 50 years later, Trump comes into office. He's got his own brand of madman theory, but it's different, right? One, in that he uses it not only against adversaries, but also against allies, keeping you know NATO allies, Canada, Mexico uh, on edge, off balance, arguably as much as China, Russia, uh, Iran, etc. Uh, but even and this is this is the more uh, disturbing dynamic of it: his own advisors and senior officials. I chronicle a whole host of uh, situations during his presidency when he caught the entire national security community off guard. Uh, his two withdrawals from Syria. Uh, for instance, um, where the decision-making, uh, the policy-making rather follows the decision. It doesn't, it's not preamble to it. He comes up with something and then they got to figure out how to deal with it. So, so Trump's madman theory is, is definitely unique to him. And, and, you, and you do point that out in the book that there was a 10-month lapse between him trying to make that decision and the actual execution of that decision because many people frankly disagreed with him on that decision, including Secretary Mattis, who more or less said he resigned over that policy decision. I, I wanna go back a step though. I wanna take you right back to, uh, you finished the book, you've done all this research, the book closes and someone comes to you and says, okay, so give me Trump's foreign policy. Give me his strategic worldview. What is it, Jim? I asked everyone I interviewed for the book that very question. Crystallize it for me, put it on a bumper sticker or a campaign slogan. And the common refrain is transactional. That the Trump's view of the world with, again, adversaries and allies is, what are you doing for me? What are you doing for us? Do I perceive that to be equal and balanced, right? Uh, now, that can serve your interest, right? Because you, you can arguably find a way to make a deal. For instance, with China, you know, someone who you know is competing with you and wants to unseat you as the, as the world power. Um, and you saw some of that, you know, slices of it in, in the phase one trade deal, although even, and I tell this story too, his own advisors involved in that considered that a capitulation. 
the, the trouble is with with allies as well. He has a very similar view of it. And we, we've seen this play out with uh, trade disputes with um, with Canada, for instance, uh, reignited just last week, uh, or dealings with with NATO allies over the budget, or right now with South Korea over quintupling how much South Korea pays to support the deployment of U.S. troops there. The, the trouble with that transactional worldview, and again, don't listen to me, listen to the folks who worked with him at the highest levels, is that it's so narrow-minded that you miss all the other things that go into that relationship, right? I mean, H.R. McMaster talks in the book about how much trouble he had convincing the president that alliances have ancillary benefits, right? That, that can't be boiled down to a bottom line. Things like intelligence sharing or backing you when you go to war, say, post 9-11, when, when NATO invoked the Article 3, mutual defense. Um, beyond, you know, you know, beyond that, shared values, goals, support for rule of law, et cetera. So transactional, uh, but a very narrow view. Uh, and by the way, uh, sort of an end of any sort of American exceptionalism, right? You know, the Trump has a, has a very, um, what, what's the word? Um, sterile view of America's position in the world. It's, well, it's, I don't it's, want to give the whole book away, but you do point yeah. that out. And it's in conversations with Putin and the realization in his mind that uh, America doesn't need to be quote unquote exceptional or do exceptional things for the world. It can just be another player on the world stage. So I want to, I want, I, want, I want to thread this question and get your reaction to it. If you go back to Dean Atkinson and the book Present at, at the Creation, and the understanding of the infrastructure that was put in place after World War II, and you tie it to Brent Scowcroft, the legendary national security advisor that just passed this past week. There was a continuous threat, whether you were a Democrat or a Republican, there was an idea until the Berlin Wall fell down of a policy of containment. There was an idea that we were going to be constructively engaged around the world, helping our allies, and we were going to disavow our enemies, but we were going to do it in a way that hopefully didn't lead to conflict, we would use soft power, uh, some hard power, but you got the point. That continuum from 1947 to let's say 2017, January ended. It seems like the cord got cut on that. Mm -hmm. And we're into something new now, which you reference in the book. Are we permanently into something new now? Are we going back to something old or do we now have to re-engineer everything, Jim? It's an open question. I think, of course, the, the most immediate question is, does it last another four years or just another three months, right? I mean, that, that, that's an open question. Well, you, you tell me, does it last another four years or does it end in another three months? I know no better than probably anybody else on, on this call. I mean, we look at the polls, but listen, a lot can change in a short period of time. I mean, the, the thing is, and this is, again, you, you know, a point uh, repeated by many of the folks I, I spoke to, um, confidence is easily lost. Uh, far more difficult to gain, right? Uh, confidence in, in, in an alliance. How, how, for instance, the NATO alliance, how quickly can you turn that around? And by the way, folks I spoke to for the book share John Bolton's uh, concern that in a second term, steps like leaving the NATO alliance are possible uh, or reducing or eliminating US troops on the South, on the Korean Peninsula or removing all troops from Afghanistan, right? These, these things that, that we, we sort of- Or, or we, repositioning the seventh fleet in the Pacific. You know, you, 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 got, you got all of those different things. No question. And, and you know, a lot of things that happened in half measures in the first term uh, might 
you might go whole hog in, in the second term. And therefore, the, the results of those things become far more, far more lasting. Um, I'll tell you one thing that, you know, the alliances, you know, alliances are, uh, you know, they're about how you feel about them in a way, right? You know, beyond what's on the paper, do you believe them? Do your fellow allies believe in them? And more importantly, do your adversaries believe in them? So when you look at like a NATO alliance, yes, we're still in, but you know, you know, Russia senses the fissures, right? And they listen when the president questions, for instance, the obligation to abide by the mutual defense, you know, clauses of that. Uh, so, you know, once those questions are raised, how quickly can you tamp those down? That, that's, that's an open question. Um, it's an open question for this country, regardless of who's in the White House on January of, of 2021. And, and there's genuine concern uh, of folks, you know, who worked at the highest levels for this president about how lasting those changes are. Okay, so let's switch to China for a second. You studied Chinese history. You were based in Hong Kong, as you referenced. Uh, one of my uh, friends who's in the foreign policy establishment said that the decision to go after China as aggressively as the president is, I want your reaction to this, is tantamount to the decision of Germany attacking Russia in 1941. It'll have the same sort of consequences. And I want to give you a specific example. Let's go to WeChat. We're going to ban WeChat. There will be retaliatory measures on Apple Computer and other great companies, multinational companies in China. So what's your reaction to that statement about how the president's handling China? Again, I don't want to give the book away. Uh, but then secondarily, uh, you see that potential retaliatory situation that could set itself up, which will lead to further bellicosity and more conflict. What's your reaction to all that? So where we are right now with China is a very dangerous moment. And, and before I go further on that, just for the sake of the folks listening here, I, I spent a good 20 years covering or, or working in China. And I spent a couple years in government there as chief of staff, the ambassador. I have watched, you know, up close Chinese malign activities, right, against their own people. I've spoken to dissidents who were tortured, you know, but also I've spoken to companies and maybe some of you are on the call here right now who've had your IP flat out stolen. I've spoken to folks in the Pentagon who've watched U.S. national security secrets go out the door to China. So, so I, I have a real granular experience of China's bad behavior here. And by the way, in the book, I, I make the case for uh, pushing back hard against China, right? You know, giving credit where the credit credit is due to this president, and just my own experience of watching the U.S. be so deferential to China through the years for for no good reason. So, so just so, so you know where I'm coming from in terms of personal experience here. So, Trump comes in and says, "I'm not gonna I'm not gonna stand for that anymore," and and we've seen that, and we've seen some benefit uh, from that. W where we are this year is different, though, because he is clearly ratcheting up. The tension, the statements from Pompeo, etc., uh, you know, the, the real moves uh, and, and ones that really hit China in the gut, right? Um, on on some of its, you know, m most uh, you know valued national industries here, Huawei, you know, TikTok, etc. And, and when and Trump officials, Trump himself, Peter Navarro too, he talks about in the book, they speak openly about wanting to damage China here. They want to move the supply chain out of China. So people in Beijing are like, you want to screw our economy, right? I mean, they, they take that seriously. So the question then becomes, and this is something with, with, with all of Trump's national security priorities is, okay, 
you got every right to push back against them. And I can understand each of these moves you're doing now individually. Tell me how it ties together. What is the end game here? Where does this take us? Is, is, is there a negotiation point you're trying to come towards? Is there a phase two trade deal uh, that, that, that solves some of, the, some of these issues? Is, is this a case where there is um, a quid pro quo, where, there, where there's a transactional point where you can reach some sort of agreement? Because Steve Bannon speaks very openly in this book about the possibility of war with China within five years. Is that, is that an eventuality that the president is prepared for? Does he have an off-ramp before there? Those questions aren't answered. So that's the concern. We, we do point out in the book, if it's okay, I, mean, I don't want to give up the book. I think the book is amazing. That's why I keep holding it up. I think it should be a bestseller, Jim. God bless you for writing it. Uh, but, you know, it'd be very tough to have a land war with China. It would be very tough to have a naval war with China. Uh, we've also overextended ourselves over the last 20 years in other wars. And so this sort of nonsense, I mean, I, I consider my only contribution to American history is knocking Steve Bannon out of the White House alongside of me. I think that that probably saved more people's lives than people fully understand, but we can go into that at another point. Uh, but that nonsense and that ideological nonsense that can uh, flip the switch and end up into a violent war, how likely do you think that that is, Jim? I asked everybody for this book, and I, and I constantly am asking my contacts in the Pentagon. I'll tell you one thing I watch very closely is Taiwan, right? And I think, you know, as the U.S. has sailed ships more frequently through the straits there and advertised that, right, in a way we haven't done in the past. And as China takes steps, like if you've seen just in the last few days, uh, flying warplanes over Taiwan, I mean, you know, you know, the nature of how these things escalate, it, it follows a pattern here. It's like the guns of August, like Barbara Tuckman referenced about the beginning of the First World War. What do you think of the national security law that was just implemented in Hong Kong? Oh, it's-, it's how, uh, how does that tie into Taiwan? It's, uh, it is sad. I, I lived in Hong Kong for five years. I still got a lot of friends there. And, and you know, that, that was a special place, right? Right on the, you know, uh, on, on the side of China. They're ending Hong Kong. You know, Hong Kong as we know it is over. Hong Kong is is effectively now part of China. You know, for for all you know, with all the bad reasons you can imagine. Um, I think for, from the U.S. perspective, it's it is a, a measure of U.S. policy, right? That if getting tough on China was going to deter them from doing things you don't want them to do, it didn't work there, right? China said, you know what, we're going to do it. You know, all the threats you have, you can sanction us, whatever, we're taking it over. That, that's a sad, that's a loss, right? I mean, they could have done it to any president or any administration, but, but that's, that's, it's a loss for the world, it's a loss for Hong Kong, and it's a, it's a loss for the U.S. Um, and it does show something that folks have been writing about for some time, and, and that, that's in the public commentary, too, that, listen, there are two players in this game here, right? It's not just Trump. I mean, Xi Jinping is, is no slouch. Uh, and he has a very, you know, cocky, you know, ambitious view of the world and view of the U.S. and actually a somewhat dismissive one because it's interesting. You know, China talks about the U.S. in increasingly dismissive terms. They see us in accelerating decline in terms of our economy, our political system. And even in their public commentary, they move up their aspirational date for taking over the U.S. from 2040. 2049, you know, 100 years after the founding, uh, they start to talk about in the 2030s, you know. They're ambitious and she is an aggressive SOB. Yeah, 
And they've got population and they've got uh, uh, obviously five, 10, 15, 20 year plans. You're, you're mentioning 2049. I would recommend to people uh, on this call to go look at that plan because it's a very detailed plan uh, for the 100th anniversary of China. And uh, the United States and our political leadership has no plan. And so this is something people should really consider. Let's switch to your day job, uh, which you write in the book in your acknowledgement sec section of the book is your dream job, uh, which is being an American journalist and having your television show. Uh, uh, but you have an American president that says things like the fake news media. And he does say that the press is the enemy of the people, which you know, as his former communications director, I had to write an op-ed denouncing that sort of rhetoric. Uh, someone who believes, obviously, in the First Amendment and our Constitution. Uh, so what do you say to that? It, has your job become more challenging? Or the ratings are certainly up because the guy's obviously an attention grabber. So you like where we are right now? Is it good for you, bad for you? Well, uh, let's talk about the country first. I don't think it's good for our country, right? I, I think that, um, listen, Donald Trump's not the first president to attract the press, to attack the press. It's happened before. Uh, but he's done it in a different and far more aggressive and insidious way. And, and remember, you know, Trump is often very transparent. And, and when, when he did that interview with Leslie Stahl, I'm sure you remember right after the election, December 2016, and said, I do this so that if you write critical stuff about me, folks won't believe you, right? I mean, that, that's essentially the plan here, right? It's just that we've seen it writ large um, as someone has been in commander in chief. You know, the the... Forget about, you know, I, we, we all get attacked every day. You get attacked. I'm sure people on this phone, you know, you get attacked. Social media empowers people to say what they want, often behind the veil of, you know, any sort of distance, et cetera. Uh, I, I don't care about that. I do care about there being a generally accepted uh, view of reality because that's necessary for the functioning of democracy. And in the midst of a pandemic, where you would think at least science would trump politics, right? At least the wisdom of taking a step like wearing a mask would trump politics. At least, you know, accepting the number of deaths as real and not, well, maybe exaggerated by the left to, to, to damage my presidency, you know? But no, even that's politicized. And, you know, I'll, I'll often, I'll ask my friends who are in business who, who, who will defend the president on moves like this. And I'll say, how could, could you make good business decisions without hard data, you know, acceptable? Could you do that? It's like, well, no. And I was like, well, this is what, you know, the president's basically asking us to do because he's attacking facts that are inconvenient to him. And, and that's the most damaging thing. For me personally, my approach is just keep doing my job as best I can and, and uh, try to follow, you know, professional standards, talk to both sides. I mean, that's what I try to do on this book. Um, the best you can do, but for the country, I'm genuinely worried. Well, one of one, I, I, I'm going to turn it over to John Dorsey in a second because he's we've got a ton of questions. We got great uh, audience attendance on this, which is fantastic, Jim. But uh, one of the people that you interviewed, I can't give up his name, but I now just gave up the gender, so it's put me a little bit of a box. But uh, one of the people you interviewed, is a huge fan of yours, uh, uh, wanted me to ask you the following question and see what your take would be. Uh, the president, this is his observation, uh, likes going against his staff, meaning someone offers him a idea and it's an informed idea. And in order to prove them wrong, they'll counterintuitively do the exact opposite as a way to make them lose face. 
Did you see that? What's your opinion of that? Is that true? Based on your analysis and in this book? Based on firsthand accounts, multiple. That's a consistent thing that the president has an almost reflexive desire to play the other side, right? Uh, uh, say, well, you say that, but what about that? Just speak out who it was then, right? Because that's the word he's always using, the word reflexive. Well, we'll talk about who it is after the call's over. But, but, but I will say, but I will add the difference is, so it's one thing, Susan Gordon, who I spoke to in the book, and who, was, who briefed the president repeatedly as, as the second highest ranking US intelligence official before she was forced out uh, by the president, um, said she doesn't, she'll, she'll never question a president's ability or right to question her analysis or opinion, right, or advice. But she said that the, 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 the worrisome part becomes where he questions things we know. We know, not, not sort of questionable intelligence, but we, we know, we hear, here are the pictures of, you know, these bad guys doing bad things, right? Or we, we know this, where, where when the president, either because he refuses to see it, or it doesn't fit his worldview or doesn't fit his current position, when he denies a clear reality that that, that's the most worrisome thing. And, and we, we've seen it, right? I mean, US Intel reports that, are, that North Korea is expanding its nuclear program, not shrinking it, right? Um, just as one example, or Russian interference in the election. When you know, and it still won't move them, that's what really worries them. So, so I have to follow up, John, then I'll turn it over to you. Because another person that you interviewed for this book came to see me and said that the president's worldview is because he's not intellectually defining it, but when it comes through his you know, telescope into his sniper range, he starts firing at it, is he really wants to bring the United States back to the 1890s. He wants to wall off the United States literally and figuratively from the rest of the world. And he wants to produce everything in the United States. So if this plastic cup is a half a cent in China, $24 in the U.S. doesn't matter. You'd like to produce it here in the U.S., disengage the United States from the rest of the world, and turn it back to the prior to World War I. Yeah. And every time it comes into his wheelhouse, from your transactional description, he starts firing at that. Do you believe that that's the case? He does have a mercantilist view of the world, right? I mean, it's, it's old school, you know, both in terms of trade, Make it all here, you know, damn, damn the rest of the world, but also, of course, national security. Right? You think that's the right thing for the U.S.? I've got to add, I know you're a journalist, you want to be objective, but give me an editorial comment here. Is that the right thing for the U.S. at this moment in world history and U.S. history? Well, two answers to that, personally. One, it doesn't fit the reality of today's world. It's far too interconnected, right? But we're not sailing around on wooden ships anymore, right? I mean, you can't, heck of a lot harder to do what he's talking about. But also, I, I don't personally believe, based on my own experience, that that serves our interests best. I think that, a, that you know, the, the U.S. has profited, benefited, just speaking from our own, you know, view of the world, but we benefited a lot from an interconnected world, a world where, uh, you know, there's not war in Europe, right? And that allows for a healthy partner there and a healthy customer, too, you know, where the trade routes are open in Asia, you know, where rule of law matters, you know. Where, where there's more, not less democracy, because it's a fact, democracies are less likely to go to war with each other. So it'd be nice to stick our heads in the sand, I guess. Uh, I'd find that a much more boring world, but it doesn't, in my view, serve our interests. All right, John, I'm gonna turn it over to you. Jim, look out, he's gonna ask mean, tough, intimidating <laughs> questions, okay? I, I, I'm a ready. A harder interviewer than me, James. All right, well, we, we've covered your 
most recent book, I want to rewind a little bit to your first two books for, for a couple of questions. So the, the second book you wrote was called The Shadow War. Uh, it talks about primarily how Russia and China are waging a war that the average American might not realize is being waged, but the United States might be losing. The intelligence community concluded that Russia interfered in the 2016 election to elect Trump. And the intelligence community is saying again that Russia and others, including the Chinese, are interfering in U.S. politics again. Uh, what does that interference look like based on your sourcing? What are we doing to stop it? And what scares you most about the precedent being set by the, the level of foreign interference in recent elections? The, 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 where we are today after 2016 is just jaw-dropping, right? I mean, in 2016, and this is not you know, an issue of politics, except frankly for the president, because there was bipartisan agreement, Russia interfered to help Trump. And you saw it in, in the record. You saw it in, in the theft of DNC emails and, and the drip by drip you know, exposure of them. Uh, you saw them in the theft of John Podesta's emails and the convenient release of those emails 22 minutes after the Access Hollywood tape dropped. I mean, you know, this was, this was interference with intent. And, and, and yes, Russia and other countries had interfered in elections before, but the degree, the brashness, the aggressiveness was different. So here we are four years later, and it's happening again, right? I mean, you have a Russian-backed politician in Ukraine feeding information to Republicans on Joe Biden. I mean, it's, it's, so, it's so obvious and it's happening in the public. It's not even happening in, in secretly. Um, what's different is one, you, you have Americans participating in it, right? Um, I, I don't know, listen, you, you can make the argument that it's, it's worth investigating everybody, but you gotta know your source, right? And if it's coming from Russia and if your intel agencies are, are assessing that they're interfering again and, and wanna, advantage the president, you know, it, seem, it seems to me you should take that information with, with a grain of salt. But, but in addition to that, you know, we, we have the president who just, who just has repeatedly refused to say, no, don't do it. Um, now, the concern is, uh, does Russia, and, and for that matter, China, North Korea, Iran, who are also messing around, do they take a step they did not take in 2016, which is to, to mess with actual voting systems, vote counting, registration? Because the concern expressed to me for the shadow war about 2016, uh, which, which didn't happen, but they were concerned about it, is that the probing attacks that they've done, sort of sneaking their way into these systems, that they activate that stuff. And just, and think of this, on election day, you would not need to blow up voter registration databases in 5,000 voting districts. You could do it in three, in Florida, or one. I don't know, just imagine the upset and the questions and the fear that that, that would cause that's, you know, they're already interfering in the informational side of this election. Do they go into the systems? It's an open question. And let's be frank, they haven't been warned off it, you know, not by this president. So how do they read that signal? Uh, you know, do, do they say, can we get, get, get away with this? You can imagine them saying that. Right. If Biden were to win and you did see that level of interference and he overcame it to win the election, what type of response do you think you'd see from a future administration regarding you know, election interference? Well, I don't know. I mean, I think here's the thing, it wouldn't take much, right? I mean, the, the, the response that you need is not rocket science. It's, uh, it's a definitive statement that we won't stand. Now, again, credit where credit is due. I do, I do it in this latest book, The Madman Theory, in terms of Trump standing up to China. And I did it in the shadow war talking about 
the Trump administration has enabled Cyber Command uh, to be more aggressive in terms of responding to cyber attacks than, than the Obama administration did. Uh, some of this is, you know, a lot of this is classified, but some of it's sort of snuck its way out, you know, implanting US uh, weapons, tools, whatever you want to call them in their crucial systems, kind of letting them know about it so that if they go too far here, we can say, hey, we could turn our, you know, we could turn our weapon on too. So, so the US has taken a more aggressive, aggressive posture. The thing is, the president has not indicated in his public comments that interference in the election is a red line for him, right? He, he hasn't made that clear. And a lot of this is about messages delivered. So you talk about how Trump's general foreign policy actions are defined by transactional, a transactional approach to foreign policy. So if you talk about a couple of the, the big headlines that have generated a lot of controversy uh, regarding Trump's foreign policy, one, Intelligence has reported that Russia put bounties on the heads of U.S. troops, which in some cases they believe might have led to some deaths of U.S. troops. He pulled U.S. troops out of northern Syria and basically left the Kurds uh, for dead, allowing Erdogan to come in and have his way in that part of the world. What do you think the transaction is that's taking place? Is it something extremely cynical, like blackmail or, or financial inducement? Or do you think it's a part of that reflexive contrarianism that Trump you know, likes to engage in with his staff? I think it's different. I asked everybody for this book, can, how can you explain the president's deference to Vladimir Putin? And their most consistent answer is this one, that the president admires him. He's got an admiration for Vladimir Putin for his power. And some of this, again, is in his public comments, right? He's a strong leader. You remember him saying that a couple of years ago. His power, the, the, the power he has. Can, in can I interrupt you for a second, though? Because some journalists have suggested something more nefarious than that. Do you think that there is anything nefarious or you just think it's that he admires his power? You've done the homework. Well, here's the thing. I, I uh, and again, I, I, I asked everybody about that. Everybody I interviewed for this book and I delve into that question in this book. Um, without proof, I don't think it's, it's a, without proof that there's a compromise or something. I don't think it's a substantive conversation. Did you read Bolton's book though? Chapter eight was like the orange jumpsuit chapter. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was like ridiculous. So you don't well, think that's true? The melding of the idea that the president has, has business interests in Russia, I think is, is, I mean, but again, a lot of that's in the public record. So that's very believable. The idea that he has debts to Russian uh, investors uh, is also credible. I don't have proof of that. Um, and, and the people that I spoke to for this book don't have proof of that. They have their suspicions. Uh, but I, I didn't want this book to be about printing suspicions. I wanted it to be about things that people had personal experience of. So the consistent thing, and this, this, could, this could live right alongside what Bolton has alleged and others have alleged, but the most consistent thing they had uh, personal experience of and witnessed was that the president expresses and shows admiration for Vladimir Putin, for his power but also that he shares Putin's nihilistic worldview, that it is a zero sum game, that no one's really better than anybody else on the world stage. And you saw that, go back to the Bill O'Reilly interview, right, 2017, Putin's a killer. Well, you know, are we all, anybody else? Are any of us really that good? But even more recently, after the bounties story and, the, and when the president was reminded that, well, it's not just the bounties, Russia armed the Taliban to kill U.S. soldiers in 2018. And the president's answer is, well, we armed the Taliban in the 80s. It's all the same, you know. And that, you know, why does that matter? First of all, do any of us here 
Is that our view of our country, right? It's not my view of my country, certainly not what I want it to be. But in addition to that, what, what Intel officials who I interviewed for this book told me is that Putin knows that Trump admires him and he seeks to take advantage of that. In fact, they say that, that some of Trump's worldview is influenced by Vladimir Putin. For instance, that a, a number one source of the president's hostility to Western European leaders, our allies, is Putin. You know, that they have an affinity on that. It's like, yeah, that Merkel, what a pain in the ass, right? You know, we, and that has consequences. We just pulled troops out of Germany. So uh, one Intel official I spoke to used this term, that Putin is Trump's honey trap, right? That's a remarkable thing to hear from someone who served him at the highest levels. And the, and the Intel agencies, again, I write about this a lot about in the book, about this in the book, feared that Putin was in effect carrying out an influence operation on the president, right? To influence and shape his views and therefore shape the policy. Uh, and if you look at the public, you know, so even if you don't have a P tape or, you know, a giant Russian debt load, that enough is, is a fairly disturbing thing to hear about your president. And the, the proof is in the pudding. It's in a lot of the decisions and moves the president has made and hasn't made. So, Going back even further to your first book, which was published in 2008, it's called Against Us. It covers sort of the forces behind Islamic radicalization. And you argue sort of as the crux of the book uh, about the need to rebuild more constructive relations with the Arab world. 12 years on from that book, has anything changed? Have conditions improved? And are we any closer to solving the quagmire that is the Middle East? You know, I wrote, I wrote that book, one of the theses was about the appeal of Islamic extremism in the Western world among, among you know, Muslims in the West. Um, it came out in 2008, and I, you know, I kind of, then you saw what happened, you know, I'm not sort of right. claiming credit for it, right, but we saw that, you know, bear out with ISIS, you know, and these homegrown terrorists and all that, you know, lone wolves, et cetera, the appeal of ISIS, you know, all these folks who went to Syria from, from Europe, et cetera. Um, so the question was, you know, how, how to address it, address it is, you know, I think the security response to this kind of terrorism has certainly advanced, right? I mean, you, and again, I, in this book as well, I give credit to uh, Trump for accelerating uh, the dissolution, not the dissolution, but the defeat of ISIS in Syria. They're still around, you know, um, you know, accelerated after, after the Obama administration. Uh, so from a security perspective, probably better off, although the th things haven't gone away. Terms of the relationships, no, not really, you know. And uh, in fact, I mean, where where U.S. policy is going regarding uh, Israel, the Middle East, you know, some of those relationships, it's it's taking it in a you know in a different in a different direction. So I want to ask you one last question. We ask this question of every guest who sort of covers national security as a national security expert. What types of threats, and maybe ones that Americans, the everyday Americans, aren't as aware of? What type of threats and future methods of warfare are the ones that really keep you up at night and, and uh, you know, make you worry about where the world is headed? Uh, well, cyber and space, right? Cyberspace and space space. Uh, you know, the, the degree, I think people are generally aware that cyber is a problem. And if you work for any company in this country, you know, you've been, you've been attacked, right? You know, probably getting attacked right now. You might've faced a ransomware issue. Um, you know, all of us on this call, I've been hit, you know, it's interesting, you know, the four biggest cyber uh, thefts in the last like five years, I've been hit by all four of them. Uh, one, because I work for the government, OPM, they got all of me and everything you want to know about me and my family, they got that. Uh, Anthem, 
Blue Cross Blue Shield, so they got all my health information for my family. Um, Marriott Hotels, so they know where I've traveled and all that kind of stuff. And what's the other? Oh yeah, Equifax, so they know all my final financial position. I'm like, and all of that, lots of that goes back to China. So I like, they must have a really thick file on me. You got uh, nothing to worry about now. Everything's out there. You're like an open book. Not, you know, I'm just gonna throw it all out there. there. There's that, but you know, so that's like on the business side, but as it relates to how you know all the stuff, you know, the lights. You know, they could turn the lights off in Washington, D.C., right, based on penetration of critical infrastructure systems. Our very election systems, you know, even more worrisomely uh, under attack, our political discourse. So that's the cyber side. And, it, you know, connect the dots on that. And it's a real threat to everything we rely on. The space part, I think, is one that folks didn't know a lot about. They're getting to know more about, you know, with the Space Force and even some you know, movies and TV shows and so on. But, you know, there, there are weapons in space. And every couple, every couple of months, I'll read about Russia or China launching another space weapon. You'll see it. Just keep your eyes open for it. It's up there. There are lasers in space. There are kamikaze satellites. There are kit. China wrote about it in the Shadow War has a satellite that Moonraker style can steal other satellites out of orbit. And, and we depend on that technology, both for our security, but also for business communications, et cetera. I think that's the front of this war that folks haven't really gotten their heads around yet. Just one follow-up on the space piece. How do you regulate you know, space warfare and how do you counter threats in space in a supranational type of way to prevent you know, just all-out mayhem from breaking out in terms of the space race and space weapons? We need it. We don't have it. We don't, we don't, have, a, we don't have a SALT treaty for cyber, right? And we don't have it for space. You know, rules of the road. You know, we're... You know, red lines, uh, you know, what are you, you know, what, the whole host, all the things that we established for nuclear weapons and help keep the peace, right? We don't have that for cyber or, or for space yet. I mean, yeah, you, you have some communication probably more at the state level about what each side considers a red line attack in, in the cyber sphere, but you need treaties if you want to avoid the prospect, uh, or, or not avoid, minimize the prospect of war. But if you talk to folks in Space Command, and they're like, it's in my book, and you'll hear it elsewhere. I mean, they're, they're saying, you know, like, Star Wars is not far away. I mean, the, 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 the nature of the way human beings are with war is that war moves to the next available front. And, you know, we're already there, and, and we'll, we're, we're going to, you know, it, it's going to look, it's going to be more threatening over time, not less. All right. So, well, Anthony, you have a final word? I got one last question, and yep. then I'll let you go, Jim. We try to keep these things tight. Uh, Madman Theory, loving the book. book was awesome. Are we safer hmm. as a result of Donald Trump's Madman Theory or less safe, Jim? In most spheres, less safe. Uh, the final chapter of the book is before and after. You know, just... just uh, and I, I do it very academically. Here's where we were with North Korea. They had X number of nuclear weapons. This advanced the ballistic mobile program. They have more now. Iran is closer, not further from a nuclear weapon, right? Uh, Russia is more, not less aggressive in the world sphere. Now, we've stood up to China, but the fact is China hasn't backed off in any of the places we've challenged them. Actually, they've gotten more aggressive. Now, will that change over time? But but, but the sad fact is we're less safe. Uh, and uh, if, you don't, if you don't believe me, just be, do me a favor, read that chapter, folks, and tell me if you disagree, and I will accept all well, criticism. I wanted to ask you that because you, do, you end the book with it. And, and, but the, the last thing I will say, it's a phenomenal book, but it's also a cautionary tale 
on going against the grain of discernible thought and opinion that's been bipartisan and established for 80 years. Uh, uh, you know, maybe the establishment wasn't really that wrong after all. Who knows? We'll have to see what happens here, Jim, come November. But I want to thank you for writing the book. I want to thank you for being on Salt Talks. Uh, John Darcy downgraded his room. He had like George Washington pictures and all kinds of stuff like that. So you and I could stay competitive with him. So, uh, but we'll let you go and hopefully we can get you back before the election, if you don't mind. We'd love to have you come back before the election, talk a little about where you see things uh, uh, prior to election day. Anytime. Deep gratitude to you, to John, and everybody who took the time here. You do me a great honor if you had a look at the book, uh, and, and I wish you all the best uh, uh, as we get through all this. All right, it, was a great, it was a great read. Thank you, Jim, for writing it. See you soon.